Welcome one and all to one of our very special hashtag eye candy shows here on She Said, She Said, in which we celebrate and honor internet movers and shakers who are ideal. That is, they're interesting, innovative, and iconic. They are incredible women and men, hence eye candy. I'm Lena Stagg, your co-host on She Said, She Said, and I'm the author of the five-volume recipe record series of rock and roll cookbooks full of good food, good fun, and great rock and roll stories, facts, and trivia. They're chock full of easy-to-prepare recipes, such as the Beatles-themed I Am the Eggs Man and the the Stones-themed Tumbling Rice, and hey... You'll love my strawberry pie forever, which is a special recipe from Jude Sutherland Kessler and the authentic recipe for Liverpool Scouse supplied by Dave Bedford, the author of Liddy Pool. Please check them all out at lanastag.com and sign up for my newsletter. And while you're there, take a look at my two little dog children's books. They're written for children and adults alike, and they will touch your heart. Hey guys, I'm Jude Sutherland Kessler, Lena's faithful sidekick and the author of the John Lennon series, which if you're not familiar with it, it's a highly researched and documented narrative history series, which is a little bit different from historical fiction because almost every sentence is footnoted and documented. And it tells the story of John and his mates as John progresses from his birth in October of 1940 up to right now, 1965. It's going to be a nine volume series. And you can get the first four books. They are they're out and available. Some of them are sold out in physical form, but you can get them in the Kindle book. And we are so excited. And I say we because Lena is editing the book and she is going through this page by page just as I'm doing. So we say we. Fifth volume is coming out on John's birthday, 9 October of this year. So it is for pre-sale. Hooray, hooray. I was so excited. Yesterday was our first day of pre-sales and we sold 57 yesterday. So I'm hoping it'll just keep up and that we will will go into 1965 with John and the lads. I want to issue a quick invitation to all of you to come to the free, perfectly free Focal Points webinar on Tuesday evening of this week. We're going to be talking about Sometime in New York City, my favorite John Lennon solo LP, which was bashed and everyone hated it when it came out in 1972. The critics gave it heck. And if you go back and look at it now, it's so today. John was so far ahead of its time. It's a great LP. Tuesday night, 7.30 p.m. free. And Gary Van Syok, who was the bass player for Elephant's Memory Band that um, was with John and recorded the music for sometime in New York City, is going to do a Q&A. So join us on Tuesday night free of charge for some fun and great info. Oh, I cannot wait for this <laughs> webinar, dude. I am so excited and everyone is going to love it and going to love the fabulous Gary Van Syok. He is so so kind, and he has so many treasured memories of that time he spent with John. So it's going to be so exciting. So 
that will be fun to see everyone. Thank you, Jude, for bringing it out for all of us to enjoy. Jude and I are so thrilled to have you along for this very special show tonight because we feel really fortunate to have with us not someone who has researched John Lennon or written about John Lennon or even made a film about John Lennon, but someone who really knew John, someone who was near and dear to him. In fact, John liked her so much that he gave her the fond nickname Haloon. <laughs> a, a pet moniker inspired by her penchant for fun and zany ideas. And I can't wait to meet her. She was one of his closest friends during the years that they spent together at Liverpool College of Art. And they continued that friendship through all of the years that followed. She was also a trusted friend and confidant of John's beloved sin, his wife, Cynthia Lennon. Yeah, I can say that one of the most exciting nights of my life was when I first heard from our guest today. I was living in Kansas City and it was like four in the morning and our phone rang and I jumped up and answered it to hear this beautiful woman's voice on the other end of the phone inviting me to come to her lovely and it was absolutely lovely home in Chester, England, that historic wall city to talk with her about her days as John's dear, dear friend at Liverpool College of Art. Now, I had been for a couple of years in the process of interviewing people in and around Liverpool, um, Alan Williams and Bob Wooler and people like that, who graciously were giving me their time and memories to talk about John's childhood and his teen years and the early band years and so forth. I was working on volume one in the John Lennon series should have been there. And I wanted to talk to as many of those people who had the real stories as I could. But why hadn't I called our guest today? Well, simply because I didn't think she talked to me. She was extremely famous, always had been as a designer and an artist. And at that time, she was the designer for the hit television show, Dallas. And I thought, well, she was going to have time to sit down with me, but it is really true that old saying, the bigger they are, the kinder they are. And this mega star, as my wonderful fortune would have it, invited my husband and I to come out to her house and to sit down and visit with her. And we were so honored to be able to meet and chat with the lovely, quite lovely, animated, talented artist and designer, John's dear friend, Helen Anderson. And Helen, we are so happy to reconnect with you and to welcome you to She Said, She Said. Well, I'm so happy too. Um, I'm highly flattered at all your beautiful comments, Jude. (laughs) Thank you so much. But it was a great day. I thoroughly enjoyed having you both there that day. I can't remember. We darted around all over the place and I can't remember what we talked about hardly, but (laughs) we know about a lot of things, but it was absolutely delightful. And I'm so glad all these years we're in touch again it's great news and love Anna too oh we are so honored to have you here today Helen it's just oh, thank you thank terrific. you my pleasure it's my pleasure well I'm going to kick things off Helen um it's Jude and um let's talk about that amazing afternoon in your home in Chester we were just sitting there and hearing your stories about Liverpool College of Art and One of the things that you were so gracious to show us was a collection of drawings that John had created for you that he gave you 
in return for a very special item that he wanted from you. Tell us that story. I so love it. <laughs> yeah, but there were several swaps and deals that we did together, actually, because um, number one was John used to ask me to turn his um, his old fashioned school trousers into drain pipes. Right. Well, very tight. Like today, they'd be like leggings. And um, so I, I used to go home from college in the evening with a pair of John's old trousers and run them up on my mother's machine to make them very tight. Come in the next morning with some new trousers and he'd feel nice and cool, you know. <laughs> and um, of course, <laughs> I, start, I started doing this on a regular basis. Every night, my mother said, what have you got tonight? I said, oh, more things for John. I'm altering this for John. I'm altering that for John. But, you know, he never had a brass farthing or a penny. And I used to say, when are you going to pay me for some of this work I'm doing for you? So every time we, we brought some, I brought some new things in for him, he'd, he'd, um, he'd say, okay, I'll do a sketch for you. Or I'll, you can have this poem. I'll write a poem for you. I've still got one of the poems he wrote for me. Uh, a lot of things did fall by the wayside over the years. And some of them in house moves got lost, I think. But I had an awful lot of things that he'd drawn for me, especially for me. But he also, on one occasion, uh, coveted um, a, a sweater that I was wearing, which was miles too big for me. But my auntie had knitted one of those. We call them Aaron sweaters. I think Ralph Lauren does them now, very posh ones. But in those days in England, you, uh, students had to have big sweaters and it was very cold in these colleges and things like this. And so we were all huddled up in these great big knitted um Typically, uh, West Coast of Ireland sweaters. They were, they were most made in Aran, the Isle of Arran in Ireland. And um, anyway, um, so John wanted my sweater. It was a pale, yellowy, creamy colour. I said, OK, fine. It'll suit you better than me. So he put it on. And he said, oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Right. I'm having it. So anyway, he said, he said, I can't pay. I've got no money, but you can have this book. And it was a book of 24 drawings oh. on, on each side of the page. That there was a drawing. And it amounted to about 24. And they were, they were very, very whimsical and very funny cartoons, beautifully drawn, intricately drawn, of his school friends, head, headmaster, various masters from Quarry Bank, and girl, a couple of girlfriends in there as well. And um, I looked at this book and I thought, my God, <laughs> this fellow is so talented. I, when I first met him, he... He sort of approached me in the corridor and looked like some sort of spotty teenager, you know, and he bumped into me and said, um, are you the girl that painted Lonnie Donegan? Because I'd been asked to paint a portrait of a, a pop star that played Skiffle, a very famous pop star in England. When I was only 16, I was still at the junior school of art, which is where I met Cynthia, actually, as well. And um, I painted this portrait of this star in oils, Stayed at his home with his family for three weeks during the summer holiday, just before I started at the art college. And um, it, it managed to reach the local paper. And I think John must have seen it in that. But as it happened, Lonnie Donegan was John's idol at the time because they had formed, um, with the Quarrymen boys, a skiffle group. And it was, it was, uh, skiffle was a kind of rock and roll that was based on Old American music, old American songs, uh, uh, hillbilly songs, and songs that men sang on building the railroads and all that sort of stuff. But right, Huddy Ledbetter, I think Huddy Ledbetter was uh, Lonnie's in influence when he was writing these songs. But anyway, John idolized this guy. 
And what, when he knew that I'd stayed at his home and knew his family and all this business, it was, um, right. Well, if you, if you're the one that did that picture, I want to see the picture, but I also want to be your mate for life. <laughs> so that's, that's how we first met. And, um, anyway, I, th- I thought he was, um, an interesting and very different looking young guy. And he had a, a very wicked little expression in his, in his eyes and nose because his nose used to flare up when he was just about to say something funny. Uh, nostrils would flare, you know. And we always knew, um, in, in the classes in college, we always knew when John was just about bored with the silent life class and he would start dis- disrupting everybody and the nostrils, the nostrils would flare and we'd all be having a sly peep. And then all of a sudden all hell was let loose when he started jumping all over the place, jumping on the model's knee, uh, raising hell in the, in the life class, you know. And oh. we, we had some very, we had some very lovely tutors who, um, who, who were kind of, um, mindful of the way he behaved, but they were, they were probably quite amused and kept very straight faces. And in the beginning, he was just the, the court jester, I suppose. And they never really bothered, but he became more and more disruptive as, as time went on. And I think the painting department and the serious art department got a bit fed up with him. And that's when after a year, he was moved to lettering. Right. <laughs> anyway, to go back to his books, um, they were, they were absolutely beautiful drawings. And I, I remember, um, I said, are you sure you want me to have these? And he said, oh, I know they'll be in safe hands. And, and I actually did treasure them for many, many years. And, um, eventually they, they moved on to a, a more worthy owner than me, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but I still have all the prints and they, I look at them all the time and they amuse me, you know, forever. And I had a lot of loose drawings he'd done as well. I still have a couple of things. And anyway, so I, I saw John's art as something very special. And this man had a, had a brain. He had, he didn't look as though he had a brain because he was, he wanted to be one of the lads, a Teddy boy, half Rocky Roly character, you know. And I didn't know much about his music playing at the time in the first week or two. But then very swiftly, um, the guitar came into the college and, um, we talked about rock and roll people that we, we liked, you know, we, we both loved Buddy Holly. Right. And I remember the day, I remember the day that, um, Buddy Holly was killed in a, in an airplane and John was nearly in tears over this. He came in, he said, oh, Buddy Holly's dead. And yeah. it was, it was a terrible, it was a really, really sad day for us little group, you know, in our, in our lot. And, um, we were all in mourning for Buddy Holly. Yeah. And yet John never showed this emotion to us about his mother. You know, I, I found it rather sad. They never said anything, but there it is. He, he, he wouldn't discuss losing his poor mother, beautiful mother. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, so I knew he was, he was very, very gifted in graphic art. Right. And until the moment, I never heard the music. But shortly after that, Suddenly, George and Paul, who were at the school next door to us, started drifting in for lunch, and they both had guitars on their shoulders. And so John whispered to me, he said, look, Arthur Ballard's room is empty until two o'clock every day, because Arthur Ballard was one of our tutors in painting. And so we would sneak up to Arthur's room straight after the boys had had their fish and chips in the canteen or sandwiches or whatever it was. And about six or eight of us um, who were little fans uh, we went, we went and sat in 
that painting room and they got in the corner and started playing. Mm. These incredible, incredible, luxurious recitals with Beatles and just six or seven of us, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they weren't the Beatles then. They were still quarrymen. And Len Gary, who used to play with them in the quarrymen, he came in a couple of times as well. He was still at Quarry Bank, I think, at the time. I'm not sure where he was. But anyway, he came in on a couple of occasions and played his bass with them. But as soon as you heard their music striker, it was like something out of the ordinary. You know, they, especially John and Paul with their harmonizing and very little practice, probably, you know, because they were only 16. John was John was 17, Paul was 16, George was 15 at the time. George's guitar playing was superb, even as a young teenager. Yeah. He was really good. Uh, but John and Paul together, they were so beautiful. Yeah. And we just, we were mesmerized. And we had this every day, every oh. afternoon between one o'clock and two. A little recital. And they, they played, um, the sort of music they played was all Chuck Berry and other people's music. And they'd sing Everly Brothers songs. They'd sing lots of American popular singers at the time and rock and roll singers, Gene Vincent and people like this. And they'd sing all their songs. But then occasionally their own little songs crept in. And John, of course, put his own words to lots of well known songs <laughs> and funny words, which I can't repeat some of them. <laughs> They were very funny. And then there would be there would be a sort of complete contrast. And uh, your listeners in America, I don't suppose you've ever heard of somebody called George Formby. Oh, yes. George, jo- oh, George Formby was um, a Lancashire singer who sang in a Lancashire accent. And there were very funny songs. And George Harrison and John both adored George Formby. So at the end of every session, there would be uh, a bye-bye song of George Formby's. And John would sing it, you know, I'm leaning on a lamppost at the corner up the street in case a certain little lady passes by, you know, oh me, oh my. And that was one of John's favourite expressions, oh me, oh my. (laughs) (laughs) When he was having a laugh with somebody, you know, oh me, oh my, you went there last night, oh me, oh my. And he picked this up from George Formby. So, um, yeah, and the, and then they they sing um, songs belonging to um, uh, people like Alma Cogan, who was an English, she was an English sort of um, romantic pop star in the late 50s. And John and she actually eventually met. And some people say they had a bit of a fling. I don't know. Cynthia thought they did. But yeah. I've, I've no idea whether they did. But um, yeah, he, he'd always make up his own lyrics to anybody else's songs. And we just found him to be, extremely extremely talented in so many different directions and this was not visible at all you know when you first met the guy but if he he had um he he was a showman He, he always was a showman and if he had an audience he blossomed and so this is what brought him out he had a receptive audience in us and um he just loved it and he loved to play the goat and perform and act silly and uh, we had such fun in that college. I can tell you honestly, it was the it was the place of dreams for all of us. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Tell us in, in that vein. Tell everyone a little bit about your group that you hung around with because there were so many colorful people in that group, and a little bit about some of the pranks that you pulled. Well, uh, yes. Well, when we fairly fairly early on in the first year in in colleges in Liverpool, I think you probably have the same in America, but I'm not sure the um, 
the name they give to it. But we used to call it rag week. And students, new students, freshers, as you would call them, would get dressed up in funny costumes and clothes. And they'd run around the city carrying tin boxes, collecting for something. I, I never knew what the money was being collected for. <laughs> but I, uh-huh. think John ended up, I think John ended up with most of the money from the tin. <laughs> and what happened on, on one particular day, I think I may have told you this um, many years ago too, that we we went, um, about six of us, uh, about three or four girls, and Rod Murray was with us, and um, John, Paul, and George. Uh, although they weren't students, they were still at school, they joined in. And they staged. Um, a lot of people will know the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who have been to Liverpool will know it, because uh, it's the centre of the Beatle Fest every year. And, um, and this used to be a very sort of uh, ritzy hotel, because people used to stay there before they boarded the liners to go across to America, you know, pre-war and, and afterwards. And um, so the Adelphia was quite a flash hotel at the time. It isn't anymore. It's gone a bit downhill recently, in fact. But in those days when we were kids, it was a beautiful place. So John, Paul and George decided they'd have a boxing match. And they were dressed up as vicars with um, men, of, men of the cloth with um, <laughs> white collars. Uh, starch white collars and they were wearing what we call sweatshirts uh, yellow sweatshirts upside down so that meant their legs were through the arms of the sweatshirt <laughs> the, neck, the hole where the head went through was underneath their um uh somewhere down halfway down their thighs you know? <laughs> and uh, and so they were prancing around on the on the top of this there was a beautiful uh forecourt on the hotel and so they staged this boxing match and George was one of the contestants and Paul was the other one. John wasn't going to get punched, not by any means. He was the, <laughs> he was the, um, uh, the referee. Yes. So uh, John, on my right, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, in the blue corner, we have little George Harrison flyway, blah, blah, blah. And then <laughs> my left in the red corner, we have Maka. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so, and they, they commence, uh, this little boxing match and George would be knocked down and Paul would be knocked down. And, you know, within minutes, there were a thousand, a thousand people watching. <laughs> they didn't know who on earth they were, but they had a thousand people watching the antics and they were so funny. Till eventually, of course, and these were all shoppers on a Saturday, Saturday morning. And, um, in, it's like a, a semi piazza, this area. And there's a big um, store on the opposite side of the road with a huge statue, very famous statue by Jacob Epstein of a naked man. And everybody used to meet under the naked man if they were going on a date or something like that. So all these hundreds of people were hanging around and watching, killing themselves laughing. And all the traffic stopped. But that's what John did. He stopped traffic. You know, he he just had this, um, this persona that he had to be noticed, you know. So we had such... Such a big laugh, and eventually the commissioner of the hotel threw us out, and uh, off a, ca- a taxi had to pull up or something in front. You know, we were in the way, so that was that. And then for the rest of the day, we went tormenting other people in stores, and and I mean, we were just hangers on and lookers. We didn't. The girls were just laughing their heads off all day, and uh, providing the drinks from bottles of uh, lemonade and sandwiches and things for the lads. You know? yeah. Then they, we finally got on the ferry boat at. Um, at uh, Liverpool landing stage 
And we went across to New Brighton and they sang all the way on the boat going across to New Brighton and everybody enjoyed the singing and clapped and things like this. Didn't know who on earth they were. And then we went um, went to the beach to have our sandwiches <laughs> and we sat there and they were playing. And they were playing all afternoon. And, you know, it was it was really strange. We did this quite often, especially on days when we didn't have too much to do at college. We'd sneak away, get the ferry, go to New Brighton. Uh, where there was quite a nice beach in those days, or else we'd go to Hoy Lake a bit further along where Cynthia lived, and, and it was very pretty there as well on the, on the beach. So we'd just go for an afternoon and they'd sing. We'd, we'd sit and have picnics all day and have a great mm. time, strip mm. off, rip off into our bikinis on the, on the freezing cold beaches, you know. And um, <laughs> it was um, it was hilarious fun and you know, so so entertaining. We could ne- we never had a face without a smile, Aww. you know. I love it. We never stopped laughing and smiling. It was such fun. And, yeah. um, you know, people, people would, um, would have a look at them and then just, um, shrug the shoulders and walk off. I wonder who the hell they think they are. <laughs> <laughs> who do they think they are? <laughs> tell us to tell us the story. I think it was probably Jeff Mohammed and Tony Carricker. And I, I don't know if Ann Mason and you, but the, I think it was Panto Day with the street signs in the canteen. Oh, that was the same day. That was Panto oh, Day. Was it? Okay. The end of it, of it must have been the street signs. Yes. I'd forgotten about that <laughs> until you did, actually. Yes. They, they took street signs wherever they could find them. And, you know, they, and they decorated the canteen with them. And I don't know how that day ended. I cannot remember at all. I think we had some sort of a party, but it's it gone out of my mind, the party. We were so tired anyway. But, um, yes, the funny thing is that now, various street signs get stolen from Liverpool, such as Penny Lane. And Paul McCartney gets very upset about this, you know. And uh, I think there was, a, there was an instance where uh, somebody defaced the street sign of Penny Lane a couple of years ago, and he came along and started cleaning it off and, and signing it and everything else, you know. And there they were stealing street signs 50 years ago, bringing them to our college canteen. But, yeah, these are the sort of pranks. And, of course, and he just he just saw a laugh in everything, you know. Yeah. And then other times we'd walk, uh, we'd be walking home from college to the bus stops. And I I was living with my parents. I was a stay at home really because everybody else at the time was living in flats in Liverpool and having a ball every night, going to the pub. I was going home at five o'clock after college and working on John's flipping trousers or making <laughs> making him a leather waistcoat or something, and then coming back having worked all evening on his things. And um, they were all having fun in pubs. I didn't drink at the time, so I I didn't really enjoy the crack very much. I used to go for a laugh and sit with them and have an orange juice. But, you know, um, I wasn't really a devotee of beer. And a lot of the girls sat there with big pints and the big sweaters, you know, to be to be grown up sort of thing. Right. But we were very innocent in those days. It was it was it was innocent fun, you know. Yeah. Um, and we were very carefree because. Everybody was so ambitious in the, and it, the whole, the whole group of people we knew in the college, like Stu, Rod, uh, Jeff Muhammad, Tony Carrad, John Hay, all these friends that John's, you know, John's little coterie, they were all talented. And right. John only liked people that he thought were more clever than he was. And he mm. had great respect for them. People that he thought were more musical or more artistically talented or something like that. He held a great, great respect for them. And I saw a lot of this in John. 
Um, and he, he never, you know, he never upset people if, if he liked them, if he really liked them. And anyway, so we, um, yeah, we, we had great fun with all of those. And Jeff Muhammad was um, such a big guy. He was uh, half Egyptian, I think. I think he was Egyptian and um, a very uh, good looking, great big tall guy. And John decided to have him as a friend because he said, no one will punch me if Jeff's with me. <laughs> so so he, he, he got membership very quickly. <laughs> oh, I love that. That is so funny. And well, Stuart, Stuart, of course, uh, Stuart Sutcliffe, John loved because he was, um, he was a very shy, quiet, sensitive boy, a thinker, very clever and very good at painting, very good yeah. art. Yeah. And John uh, looked up to him, you know, and he wanted him in his band at all costs, even though he couldn't play a note on the guitar. And John used to struggle trying to teach him three chords, you know, and um, it was funny. But he, he got the job when Rod should have had that job because Ron had already, Rod had already made um, a, a wooden base from a tea, a tea chest. Right. And it, that it was all he still got it, actually. Rod yeah. still has that tea chest. But um, because um, Stuart had been um, given a prize from the John Moore's painting exhibition in Liverpool, which was a big annual competition for young artists, and he got the prize of £100 or something, or £1,000, I'm not sure how much it was. And um, so he bought himself a guitar, a bass guitar, and so he was in. <laughs> and that was yeah, it. Yeah. And John's so loyal to people that he loved, and he oh, yes, loved yes. Stu. And, you know, mm-hmm. so... I think he's always been loyal to his, to his um, yeah. special friends, yeah. And I think in his later life, he, st- he still saw quite a lot of his real friends as well in New York. Yeah. I didn't see him in New York. I went, I went one, on one occasion when I was doing some designs for an American company. And I was based in New York for a few weeks. And I knew that he and Yoko were in the Plaza Hotel. Was it the Plaza? Yes, on the park, yeah. And they were staying, they were staying there maybe while they were doing up or looking for a flat or something like this, looking for the Dakota before they moved into it. And um, anyway, I, I knew they were there and I went to the front desk and I um, I said, I, I'm a very close friend of John Lennon and I believe he and Persona are uh, here in the hotel. And they said, yes, they are. Now, they wouldn't say that in, in this day and age. Right. This, was, this was about 1971 or two. And, and I said, well, I'm a very close friend from school days and college days and... Um, could you um, just call their room and see if we can have a chat or a coffee? I'd love to see them. I didn't know Yoko, but I said I'd love to see her. And um, so uh, anyway, they, they obviously rang the room. And <laughs> um, Mrs. Ono said it's not convenient at the moment. <laughs> I didn't see John. That was sad. But a couple of years later, I did have a very nice conversation with him. Though. Oh, that but, is you know, so, sorry, you, you, I'm, I'm diversifying on some of your. Oh, questions. we love it. We love it. Because we... I will talk forever. We are so excited. So, so thrilled. Well, You'll I'll, if I run out, if I run out of words, you can ask me a question. But when <laughs> we were talking, we we're talking about Cynthia and, um, Cynthia, this beautiful creature I knew so well. She, I met her when she was 13. I was 12. We were both at the junior art school which was just across the road from the college. And it was a natural progression with most kids that went there. If they were, 
if they showed signs of being good, really good in the art field, they would want to go to the College of Art. And it was sort of natural progression that we went on to there. And Cynthia and I were very close friends then from when we were children. And we, um, we used to, uh, because, you know, we were both very conscious that our parents were, were not well off. Neither, neither of us had well off parents. And we had to do little jobs to earn money to keep ourselves in odd pairs of shoes and things like this. And I used to make my own clothes because I didn't want to have to buy them. Couldn't afford to really. And so we then uh, decided we'd start doing competitions for the Liverpool Echo, which was a local newspaper you've probably heard of. And they used to have every Saturday, they'd have a corner of a page. It was um, Uncle Tom's page or something like that. And we would we would do drawings and black and white pen and ink drawings. And if your drawing was published in the paper the following week, you were paid 10 and 6, the princely sum of 10 and 6, which was about a, a dollar in today's. <laughs> it was less than a dollar, <laughs> but it was a lot of money to us then. I mean, I think when, when we were paid 10 and 6, it was probably worth about $2, I think, oh my goodness. in those days. So Sid and I used to decide, what should we do this week? Should we do ballerinas? We'll do the ballet this week. So we both did drawings of ballet dancers and we'd send them in. And sometimes we'd be published on the same day and sometimes it was week between us. But we did a lot of these. We sent in, must have sent in about 25 drawings each over the, the few years we were at the junior art school. And very often they were published. And, you know, the strange thing is I had forgotten about these things. I had I had one page that I'd kept, and that was one of the ballet. It was a drawing of a group of ballerinas, Les Sylphides. And Cynthia did a drawing of um, a little girl from a, uh, with, a, with a corsage, and it was from the ballet, um, La Corsage, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And um, the, her drawings were beautiful. She was, she was a really true natural artist. Mm-hmm. And um, and we were both good in those days. We we both had little gifts, and we you know we used we tried to use our gifts. And anyway, so about four years ago, a gentleman who was living in Mexico called Philip uh, Kirkland contacted me. Right. And uh, did you know him? Yes, I wrote the foreword for that book. That's right, you did, and I yeah. wrote another little page for him as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Yes, I remember. And he asked me. He asked me, would I? let him use one of my drawings of John. I did a lot of drawings of John in that first year when we were at the college and I still have those. <laughs> and so he, um, he asked me, would I let him use the drawing? So he used my drawing of John on the cover. And this was John with his, uh, I slicked his hair back quite a bit and made him look a bit more uh, stylish on it, I think. But anyway, he liked the drawing, John did. But, but Philip used the drawing and he said to me, by the way, he said, I've been doing research in Liverpool for this book, as you know, the book and you've written about it and it, about the ancestry of John mainly and the other boys as well. And he said, I, I went into the Liverpool Echo archives and I found drawings by you and Cynthia that were printed in the newspaper. So then Philip very kindly sent me prints of all those drawings. Oh, and that was such that was such a lovely surprise, you know, and I've still got all the prints and um, I'll show you them actually um, after the broadcast. I'll, I'll send some on to you to see. And yeah, it was such a lovely surprise and how thorough he was in, in finding all these things out that, you know, half of us didn't have a clue about. We never knew that John had a, a great uncle or a grandfather who was in the uh, the clerical business. So he was a pastor in a place near where I lived in, in Crosby. And um, so it was very interesting. It was a great book. 
It was good, wasn't it? Of course. Was it all roads lead to Lennon? All roads you, lead to Lennon, yes. That's what I thought. Okay, I'll say something about that and tell people where they can yeah. purchase his and book because it, it I, is an I, excellent book. It is good. And I took it to show um, people at Strawberry Field in Liverpool because they sell my um, my caps and a few other things I do. And um, I showed them Philip's book. And uh, they bought it. They're selling it there now. So his second book is all about the history of Strawberry Field, the orphanage. And right. why John used to love going there and sitting, watching all the girls and all the rest of it. And um, it's a beautiful story. So uh, that was that was very, very interesting. But that um, proves, you know, to a lot of people who'd never seen Cynthia's drawings, she was so good. And she was very good at figure drawing. And she could draw hands very well. And you have to be a good artist paint hands well and she mm-hmm. was she had it you know she was good and mm-hmm. it's such a shame that so few people know how good an artist she was you know she was she was a very clever girl she was you know highly um she wasn't introvert at all she was quietly extrovert she liked a good laugh she had a great sense of humor right and she uh, she just loved everything about john of course everything right, right. But, um, yeah, a beautiful person. She went back to her painting in her later life as well and did some very nice things, good stuff. Yeah. So that was great. But we, we were friends from when we, were t- from when we were very young and all our lives until she died. Well, you know, years. you're the person that really let her know that she was in love with John. And I don't know, Helen, if you've ever heard the excerpt about you from Should Have oh, Been I, There. Of course I did, Yeah, I'll read a little bit of it. And then you tell us the rest of the story from that day. And and this is how it starts off. It said, Cynthia had been envious before, envious of girls whose fathers hadn't died, girls who had two parents, traditional lives. But although she'd been envious until today, Cynthia had never been jealous. The college lecture theater was packed to capacity a cricket box of noise, motion, and restless activity. But all of this was lost on Cynthia. It was a distraction, activity on the periphery. She focused narrowly on John Lennon, five rows ahead and several seats over. Everything was blurred except John and the lovely, dark-haired Helen Anderson. Helen was hard to miss. She sat directly behind John, dead center in Cynthia's view. Helen sat forward close to John. Cynthia grew increasingly uneasy. Suddenly, unexpectedly, Cynthia envied Helen for her aplomb, for her ease as she spoke specifically to John. Cynthia was jealous of Helen's boldness, her beauty, and the fact that John loved her and even had a nickname for his dark-haired friend, Helene, he finally (laughs) called her. And that, to me, you know, that was the moment when she knew, because she was jealous, that she actually was in love with this guy who was so different. But she never let that jealousy just come in the way of your friendship or separate the two of you, did she? We we laughed about it on so many occasions, Jude, because um, I, I, in fact, was trying, I was always trying to tidy John up, oh. you know, tidy his hair. He always looked a mess. He looked scruffy. He looked greasy. He always smelled of uh, fish and chips from the chip shop. And I was always trying to tidy him. And I had a penchant for doing this with 
anybody that came to my house, if the hair didn't look right, I'd sit them in a chair and comb their hair and make, give them a makeover. I still, my cousin used to say to me, I used to dread going to your house on a Sunday because we'd have to go and sit in the chair and have our hair done. And oh. I was doing exactly the same with John. I couldn't resist tidying him up a bit and trying to make him a bit more handsome. And, um, and he liked it. You know, he said, oh, he said to me on that, I remember on that day, he said, oh, Helen, do me a good, a good DA at the back. And the DA was, um, in, in impolite words, a duck's ass. Right. Right. You'd say ass, uh, a duck's ass, which was a hairstyle at the time that the Teddy boys in Liverpool and all over England were wearing. It was a sort of Tony Curtis quiff in the front. And then the back was, um, combed straight back behind the ears and then curved inwards to a center sort of, a, a center seam like a part down the center back. And it resembled the duck's bottom, you see. <laughs> this was the start. And so I was busy giving John his duck's ass on the back of his head. And it made, it made Cynthia fall in love with him. Well, I'm, I'm very happy if that made her fall in love with him. You know. And um, <laughs> I was so happy about their relationship. You know, there was no, never a... I don't think there's any real jealousy. I think she, I think she was imagining it a little bit, you know, because we're never that close. We were, we were just good chums, you know. Well, you were so, such a, such a vivacious personality and, and gorgeous girl and, and who wouldn't be jealous? Well, fun. He was such fun. I loved every minute of being with him. He was just ridiculously witty <laughs> and, and he is so amusing. And we just laughed all the time at nothing, you know. That's why he called me blue and I'd laugh at everything he said. He'd, he'd walk me down, he'd walk me down to the bus stop and make up a song about it. He'd make a song up about everything. And he'd carry my bags down to the bus stop sometimes in the evening and he'd sing a song called Carry Helly Bags Down Bolt Street. Hmm. I can't sing it now, but it's a, it was a little ditty he made up. And, um, yeah, and he'd, he'd make up songs about everybody. Same as Arthur Ballard, our tutor, always made up songs about him. Uh, dirty songs, naughty songs. <laughs> yeah. Well, Helen, <laughs> Helen, I know that after you received your degree in fine art at Liverpool College of Art, which I love hearing you talk about being um, at the College of Art, because those are not very common in the United States. And so it sounds, it's so intriguing to to hear about uh, everyone at the College of Art. It's just very enamoring. But um, you moved to Rome to paint portraits of politicians and celebrities, and you even worked as an extra in the classic film Cleopatra. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but in, um, in 1963, your dear, dear friend Cynthia beckoned you back to Liverpool again, did, yeah. and you returned so tell us about that time in your life, yeah. if you would. And we're especially interested in that signature cap that you created in your Liverpool shop, a cap that's yeah. making a big return to the fashion yeah. scene today. So uh, after, after art college, I, did, I didn't want to finish studying. And I tried to find out if I could do a scholarship to somewhere else. And uh, or London, I, was, I thought of London go, trying to get into the Royal College. And um, I, I loved uh, I loved the Renaissance um, style of painting and the the era of that in the uh, 15th century, etc. I was ma- I was mad about it. I loved history of art. We did work hard in the art college, believe me or not, we did, and we studied hard at the same time as had a good laugh. 
so when we finished, I applied for a scholarship and I got into um, a college in Rome where I did part-time there. And the rest of the time I was trying to make a living to live there, you know. So I, I very quickly found um, people that wanted portraits painting. And I had a knack of getting a very quick likeness of people. And um, I was very lucky in that respect. And there used to be a little art shop stroke gallery where I bought my paints. And every time I did a portrait of somebody, I put it in the art shop on an easel. And Amideo, Amideo, the man that owned the shop, used to get little commissions for me. Oh, I found somebody here wants a portrait of their son or daughter or something else. So I, I was doing quite well painting portraits of people. I enjoyed it. And I was spending less and less time at the art college there <laughs> because I was busy painting. And then also I was um, very keen on, because I was making my own clothes as well, and people in Italy are never shy about, asking you where you bought something. They'd walk up to you in the street and say, oh, where did you buy this? Where did, where did this come from? And went, oh, yeah, I can craft the questo. And I would say, oh, I made it myself. <laughs> and, um, and then um, one day I was looking in a, a window of a beautiful um, couture house called Sorelli Fontana on the Spanish steps in the middle of Rome. And I always poked my head in these shop windows looking at beautiful clothes. Uh, to see how they were made and finished and all the rest of it. And a young lady came out to me and I was wearing a dress, which had, I paint, I painted the front panel of the dress by hand with oil paints that you could smell the paint on the dress actually. <laughs> painted the bodice of the dress as well. And it was quite, quite a startling dress, you know, and uh, it had a very full skirt and a tiny little bodice and square neck and a big wide belt on it. And the lady came out to me and she said, excuse me, but my boss is admiring your dress. You'd be looking in our window. And I said, oh, thank you, yes. And she said, would you like to come inside and say hello? So I went in. And these these, these beautiful, um, slightly elderly ladies, these sisters, had this incredible couture shop and atelier. And they were making clothes for all the, the Cine Cheetah stars, like Gina Laura Brigida, Sophia mm. Loren, and et cetera, et cetera, and the American stars as well when they came to Rome. And they, they were very beautiful clothes that reminded me of the sort of things I was aspiring to make for myself. And they said to me, um, you painted this yourself. I said, yes. She said, well, would it, would you be very, would you be interested in painting panels on fabrics for us mm. for some of our couture customers? And of course, I just loved this idea. And so I started painting in my, in my sort of out of, out of, um, study time and out of daytime work. I, at the evenings, I was going back to my flat and painting on fabrics for Sorelli Fontana. And then I'd go into the workrooms upstairs and I, I observed how they, they were making these clothes. It, it fascinated me. So it was quite, it was very, very interesting. And I think I learned a hell of a lot from a few, a few weeks and days just looking around their, their studios and talking to the semstresses and I just learned a lot about making clo making clothes and I probably could have gone to college for two years and not learned as much as that you know because I I didn't know when I was at the college should I do fashion or should I do fine arts and I said no I do fine arts I can always do fashion if I feel like afterwards and that's exactly what happened because um, Cynthia said to me why don't you come back and make those suede things and leather things that used to make for us when we we're at college she said they're doing so well now and um John will help you get set up. He's, he's giving everybody shops and businesses and goodness knows what, which he was. He was very, very generous. And he ha always helped his friends out when he had the money, you know. He, had, he never liked money. He wasn't used to having money. And when he had it, he gave a lot of it away. 
And so since then, he'll help you get set up. So I, I was tempted to come back. I said, I'll just come back for a while and I'll see him and then I'll go back again. But I didn't go back again. Instead, I opened a little boutique atelier that reminded me of Sorella Fontana business. Mm. And, um, and I start, and Sin and John were the first through, through the door. So, you know, it was kind of snowball effect. And I was making clothes for all the kind of the new groups that were coming up in Liverpool. I'd make stage outfits in leather and suede and things like that. And little waistcoats, striped waistcoats for this group and something else. Leather capes for this guy. And do you remember Rory Storm and the Hurricanes? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I made, I made Alan, um, Rory Storm, uh, a, a long black leather cape like Dracula, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know everything we made was was slightly different. You know, and there were never two things the same. And anyway, one day, they're, they're, so it was doing quite well. And John didn't set me up, by the way. I'd saved up a little bit of money for my paintings. My dad lent me about a hundred pounds, <laughs> and I found um, I found these premises which are very reasonable to rent. And that's how I started with nothing, and mm-hmm. I built. A, uh, I built up a few, a, a couple of girls to start with to help me sew them, and I would cut them out. And then eventually, I got somebody to cut for me to my designs, and and it spread a bit. And we had three floors in the end. And then um, John, um, John and Sim were coming up for a weekend um, to visit Mimi, and they were living in London by this time, of course. Since said, John wants some leather caps making something different, and so they came in on on a Saturday morning to the shop and there was only me there and a friend of mine who was cowering in the corner Shirley who who was a, a huge Beatle fan and when I told when I told I said oh John's coming in I've got, I've got to make some caps for him and she said oh can I come in can I make the tea so, yeah. so Shirley yeah. came in she was sitting in the corner when they arrived and of course with Sin and Sin and Shirley and I were having a nice little chat John was leaping all over the place sewing on the machines to cutting bits of leather up and playing about, you know. And so anyway, he said, I want, I, I want a, a, a leather cap that's different to all the others. He said, it, it's, it's got to be a high front so the paparazzi can, can see my nose and my eyes. I don't want to, I don't want to hide my face because I like, I like it. I like to see my big smiles on these photographs in all this business. And so um, we came up, came across, came up with this hat for him, um, which sat on the back of his head and, uh, two big leather plaques across the front and a couple of buttons. And he, and he said, I need 10 of those. I said, 10? Why do you need 10? Oh, he said, I'm, I'm bound to lose some and throw some into the audience and, wow. and give them away, aren't I? So yeah. anyway, that's that. He got 10, 10 of those caps. He eventually hung on. To, he, he said to me in 1975, that's another conversation we had at the last conversation. And he told me he still treasured the first two that he got. And they weren't as well made as the last eight, but <laughs> he said I, I kept the first two, and I, I still wear I still wear one of them all the time. And then I I keep finding photographs of him from the seventies, still wearing this nineteen sixty four leather cap. He wore he wore them in uh, when they were filming Help. He said one of them got stolen off his head during that, and so <laughs> somebody just walked walked behind him and picked it up off his head, and that was at the end of that one. So lucky he had them. But, um, yeah, and, you know, so over the years, you know, I'd forgotten about all that because I'd moved from uh, doing the leather clothes in in the early 60s. And then I got married to a guy from Brussels and I lived in Brussels for five years while that marriage lasted. It didn't last more than five years, very sadly. But he was a wonderful guy. He was a filmmaker and 
he fascinated me and we had a nice life for five, five years but I was missing my own career so much and that was the real reason I just I couldn't stand this life of being at home cooking meals for television people coming in for lunch every day and things like this and um, by this time I had a beautiful daughter Danielle and it was a bit it was very difficult you know because I had no particular reason to to want my own life back but there's something driving me and I, I couldn't stick this life he he did get the chance of working for a company in England uh, uh, on Granada TV but he didn't want to move to England so it kind of yeah. it kind of became she wants to live here I want to live here blah blah and we we parted very amicably actually it was okay uh, and uh, so then I came back to England and started up a business again and it wasn't I did a little bit of leatherware in my collection, but I started off uh, a small business doing very exotic clothing, then uh, red carpet stuff. And by 1980, I had a factory with uh, quite a big workforce producing these things. And it was doing extremely well around. Well, I met you in 94. Was it 94? Right. Right. 1994. 94, yes. Uh, Yeah. So it was well on its way then. And um, I closed it in the end in um, the year 2000 because I wanted to go back into my painting then, which I, I do now still do my portraits. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, let me ask so, you, Helen, about your, yeah. tell people about that because they're, I know they want to get the cap and see the cap and tell them how they can get the cap if they would oh, like yeah. to have one. Oh yeah. So what happened um, about five years, four or five years ago, Bill Harry Rod Murray and me were giving a little seminar at the now Liverpool Art College and we were talking about painting in the 60s, late 50s and, and, and further on than that. Talking, Obviously the Beatles came into it because we were all friends of John and Paul and George, etc. And um, so the principal showed a photograph of John wearing his leather cap. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen that photograph before, but he showed it. And he said, he said to me, I believe this is the cap that you made for John in 64 for help. And I said, oh, my goodness. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. 19, end of 1963, 64. And so I told the story then that I told you about when he came in that day and playing around on the machines and all the laughs we had, et cetera, et cetera, just like the old days. And um, at the end of the seminar, there were a queue of people at five o'clock in the afternoon, it was going on all day, this thing. It was great fun, actually. I had a few people ask me, would I make the cap for them? And I said, well, do you realise that was 50-something years ago I made that hat? <laughs> and um, where, where will I find the people to make them now? You know, I closed my fashion business um, four years ago or five years ago, whenever it was. I can't remember now. Uh, 2000, that was it. So it was more than five years ago. It was nearly 20 years ago. It was 2018, this talk. And uh, yeah, I closed my business 18 years ago, closed the factory. I have no seamstresses. And I don't know where I'd get anybody to help me make these. And uh, one guy in particular kept pestering me. He was a, he was a, a groovy singer, actually, um, called Al Peters. And he kept asking me and asking me. So I, I thought, oh, look, Al, if you really want one, I'll, I'll make you one. I can't, I can't start making these. as I can't sit down at a sewing machine at my age and start running up caps for everybody. So my daughter said to me, Mum, you're crazy. Why don't you bring them back onto the market? Right. She said, there are so many. She said, there are so many John Devotees around the world that would want these things. And just try it. So 
I thought about it for five minutes and then yeah. <laughs> and then I found I found a manufacturer who was interested in making them for me in Liverpool as well. And so we started. We, it took us a little bit of time to to get the, the shape exactly as it was before. But luckily, I saved John's pattern. The pattern I made for that cap oh. and John's head size, head, head size at the time was 23 and a half inches, which is quite big, really, because he had quite a thin face, but he. He'd put on a bit of weight in in that sort of period, mm-hmm. and he had the mop top hair and everything, so he took a bigger size in hats. And um, I, I kept that pattern, and so we worked from that. And so we, I just, my daughter Danielle, who's very clever on writing and, in, and internet stuff in her own business, and she set up a website for me, and and immediately we we started selling them. I don't sell them in, in big numbers, but I sell a few every week all over the place, different corners of the world. And, you know, it is so exciting and it keeps me young. I feel, I might be ancient, but I do feel young still. And this is what helps because I've met so many wonderful people in the course of of doing these caps for them. And when I send them, when I send the box, it it comes in a leather-bound black box with John's picture on the front as the label, which I designed. And it and I put little drawings of John inside, little prints of some of my drawings of John. And they get little goodie things in there, and little surprises now and again. And I always write them a personal letter. So I send every single cap myself and I oversee and finish off if anything needs fixing or finishing. And they always get their exact size. Um, you know, we make, we make standard sizes, but uh, once we know a person's ordered one, we ask them, to measure their head and give me the exact size so that there's no comeback. They don't say, oh, it's a bit big here or a bit big there or a bit small. And we send them out and we never have a return. It just mm. doesn't happen because we, a lot of time is spent on the finishing and and the um, the girls that do the hand finishing, you know, there's a, a hell of a lot of work in them. So it's something I'm really enjoying. And, and it's, is it Helen Anderson Designs? Is that it, yeah. Helen you can you can find me on YouTube and and various things. Uh, I on IG at Helen Anderson Designs. IG and Facebook at Helen Anderson Designs. And then you can see my stories on my blog on my website, which is HelenAndersonDesigns.com. And yes, I think that's about. I don't do Twitter. I don't have time for many social media pages because <laughs> I don't to read them or write them. <laughs> I'm always busy. Well, I I love your website, Helen. I went to it and it's just adorable. And I I am totally am going to get one of those caps, one of these. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I am totally about the cap. But I love the t-shirts, the t-shirt designs. We started doing doing the t-shirts because when John's anniversary came up of 40 years last year, I, I produced a few T-shirts, just a few for Strawberry Field, because they sell the caps in there as well. They're the only retail outlet that sell my caps apart from uh, directly from me. And um, so I put a few um, T-shirts which were based on my drawings of John from way back. And there were two or three designs. And so they started selling the T-shirts alongside the caps and people like to buy, to buy the cap with the T-shirt. Or if they can't afford a cap, they'll just buy the T-shirt. And so it started like that. And then my daughter set up a little T-shirt site for me, which is the one you see. Yes. Yeah. And, um, I, I love it. I love it. They're just so clever. You. Very clever. 
<laughs> but uh, so I tell you, Helen, um, our time is starting to kind of wind down. The the uh, server only lets us record so long. So yeah. I did want to. We wanted to ask you if you would do like a lightning round with us, where we could throw out a name of some of your friends that John and you shared at Liverpool College of Art. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and some, you know, famous people of the 60s. And if we toss out a name and you could share a quick memory about that person, would, would you do that? Far away, far away. Okay. okay, so give us a quick memory or um, your feeling about Stu Sutcliffe. Stu Sutcliffe, he was um, pensive, quiet, shy, Intelligent, very intelligent, great artist. You know, he was um, he was a follower of John. John loved him too, and yeah. he was also a great painter. And had he lived, dear Stuart, I'm sure he would have made a big name in his painting. Mm-hmm. Unless he would have stayed with the Beatles, I don't know right. whether he would have done. I don't think he he left anyway to live with Astrid in Hamburg. So sure. I don't think he would have stayed with the Beatles. I think it would yeah. have fizzled out there. Yeah, but it yeah. was so sad that he, he we lost him. You know, he was a lovely boy. Absolutely yeah. lovely. Yes. It seemed yeah. like his heart was more into art than it was into music. Yes, it was. It was. It sure. was. I think, okay, I so think, how about June Furlong? Oh, June. Uh, well, June was our, our beautiful life model who John never, ever sketched. He would, he would sit in the life class pre- pretending to draw. In fact, I have a drawing of John trying to draw, draw June at these and you picked for that um, and he he never actually sketched June or much as he wanted to because one of his main objectives for coming to the art school was he could paint women with no clothes on but he thought they'd all be he thought they'd all be like playboy playboy models you know and, um, he was slightly disappointed when an artist model is a different kettle of fish altogether she is a, a, an object, you know, and you look at her objectively, uh, like like a, um, a sort of piece of still life, you know. You don't uh-huh. think of her being naked. It's, it's strange. Anyway, so he didn't enjoy that very much. So he did his own drawings in the life class. And June used to get very angry with him because he would, he'd run out and sit on her knee and she'd be sitting still and keeping a straight face. And you know, she used to get very, quite cross with him, but she liked him all, all the same. But she was a wonderful character and she modelled in the art school for... Oh, gosh, about 70 years, 60 or 70 years. And she only retired uh, probably 20 years ago. And she passed away suddenly um, after a short illness about um, six months ago, sadly. Mm -hmm. But we were in touch all all through our lives. Yeah, she was she was a character. She was Mm -hmm. a runner. Yeah, a lovely person. That's great. Okay, so tell us about the wonderful Bill Harry. Well, Bill is very talented and Bill, Bill, I knew less at college because he was a year or two older than us. Um, but he was in, he was in the John gang, you know, but I, um, I remember Bill, um, more as a writer than an, an artist, actually. I didn't see much of his work because as I said, we're in different groups, but he's always been entrepreneurial in the writing business and he started the, um, Mersey Beat magazine and all these things at the very beginning, you know, when the Beatles first started. And he stuck with that. And then that developed into all the many books he's written. And he's very, very clever. And when we were at the seminar um, doing that long daytime talk, he told everybody his life story. And what a story that was. You know, Mm -hmm. Bill achieved so much from nowhere. 
he had to he had to write when he was a kid in candlelight. That was so hard. But his story is beautiful. I have a lot of admiration for him. We speak now and again. We spoke about a month ago the last time. But, you know, you speak to Bill and then you ask a question and you get the answer six months later, you know. <laughs> but, but, yes, he's wonderful. wonderful. He's delightful. And he's, he writes the forewords for Jude's books and, and they're always so exquisite and spot. Yes, he's lovely. Clever. Very clever. Very. Okay, how about Rod Murray? I believe you mentioned him before, too. Yes, we, I see Rod quite regularly as well still. And he, he is a great artist. He and Stu were very, very close friends. And Rod and I used to get the same bus to school every morning to college. He, he was talented. He, would, he, he was quite a good graphic artist, paint, good painter. And he, he eventually, though, went into um, kinetic art and moving objects of metal and um, all this uh, slightly slightly computerized stuff before we'd ever heard of the computer, you know. Rod um, ended up teaching at the Royal College of Art this subject, and he did very, very well indeed. Over the years, he didn't, he kind of gave up the um, the music crowds, you know. He, he got so involved with his own work in London, did very well. He married uh, for the second time one of his students, Rachel, who's also a painter, and she's very, very good as well. She paints on glass and mm-hmm. uh, saw some of her work a couple of years ago. So they live a very happy life, not too far from us, over on the other side of Liverpool in Berska, I think it is, or uh, Ormskirk, around that way, north north Liverpool, north of Liverpool in Lancashire. And yes, I was speaking to him only three days ago. He's a lovely guy. He, he's you know gentle person, lo- lovely guy. And sure. again, he had the flat in Gambia Terrace that John used to cad rooms from. Uh, John never paid. <laughs> they paid the rent. Stuart and, Stuart and Rob paid the rent, I think. Uh, there was always an extra person staying there, like David Davis, another friend of ours who's died, sadly, a long time ago. Yeah, so, yeah, another great guy, Rod. And so. it's nice that all these people have still got their marbles and we, we can all talk about these days, you know. But right. so many of them have left us, you know, it's, it's very yeah. sad. Tony, Tony Carricker died five years ago, I think it was, which was really tragic. I saw him. I saw him at an evening at the art college when Mark Lewison was uh, launching his one of his um, encyclopedic books. And yeah, we, we all got together on that evening. And Tony told me then he had pancreatic cancer. Uh-huh. I was just so upset. Mm-hmm. And Anne Mason, Anne Mason was with us and she passed away uh, also four years ago now. And that was a big loss because Anne, Cynthia, Phyllis and me, we were four friends together always. Phyllis is fine. She, Phyllis McKenzie, who was also a very close friend of Sin. And Cynthia and Phil supported each other a lot. They were very, very close because Sin, uh, Sin was having Julian and Phyllis was with her at the time, staying with her, ran to the hospital, got the ambulance and all the rest of it running along Hope Street in a nighty hailing hailing an ambulance or a cab or something. I think she got a cab in her nighty and went to the hospital with Sin. But that was a, that was quite an amusing story. Yeah, and Phyllis is a lovely person. She paints still, and she's living up in the Lake Districts in England. And I usually see her on the odd occasion when I go up there, and she's been down to stay with me a couple of times over the, the last couple of years. And, yes, and who else? Oh, Jeff Hammer oh. died. How about, uh, how about Alan Williams? Alan Williams, yes. A lovely character, Alan. 
And um, I was surprised when he was managing the Beatles, actually. He was running the Jacaranda Club in um, Slater Street, I think it was, off Bell Street. We used to go there and we used to listen to the steel bands. There were I can't remember the name of the band, uh, the Caribbean band, but they were fantastic. And we used to go in there and listen to them. This was before John and Paul and George were playing down there. And then once they started playing there, it became a proper club. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then, of course, when, when Alan saw how good they were and playing in his little club, um, then the, the chance came for Hamburg. And, yeah, and it... it I don't know why it didn't succeed with Alan, but I just think they needed a stronger and more experienced manager. And they, yeah. they eventually got um, Brian, you know, who was incredible for them. Right. He was marvelous. Right. Yeah. You know, this, you know, so many of the people intimately that figure into the Beatles story so much better. And I'll tell you today, you've said so many things that really st- stuck with me. Like there was a smile for every face. Yes. Um, you know, mm. you should you should really write all this down. You have such great I stories. I, I've, I've written thousands of notes. I'm waiting for my daughter to um, edit them all. <laughs> yeah. Well, you. I must tell you. I must tell you because I didn't tell you when we um, when we met. Only because I was seeing Cynthia all the time, and I didn't like to talk about so many sort of semi-private things. But my last conversation with John was in 1975, and I didn't tell you this at the time, did I? But no. I was with Cynthia and Julian because Cynthia had just moved back from um, her second marriage to Roberto. And I helped her move house. We, I went down to help her pack up China and things like this because I, I was already back in England at the time. And so we went and we packed all these boxes and Cynthia, Julian and I and the dog Susie all traveled inside the furniture van. Uh, eight hour eight hour journey because the roads were icy at the time mm-hmm. and um, we, drove, we drove all the way in the back of the van in the dark and the dog was making rude noises all the <gasps> way awful and I said to Cynthia you should be in a limousine you know the beetle wife traveling in <laughs> traveling in furniture van she said we can't do that Helen we've got to travel in the van because I've got so many things that could be stolen right and We've got to sit on them. <laughs> so, we, so we traveled up in the van. Um, anyway, so shortly after she'd moved into this um, te- temporary house in, in Hoylake, I was at the house with them one, one evening. We'd been out to take Julian and my daughter to the fairground, I think, in Southport. Went back to take them back to their house. John rang to speak to Julian. And Sim wasn't expecting his call or anything. And she was a bit, she was a bit sad about him at the time. And so Julian had a lovely chat and he was all excited talking to his daddy. And John sounded great, you know. Uh, and then um, he said, Julian said, Mum, do you want to have a word with Dad? And she said, not tonight, not tonight. Helen will, though. <laughs> so, so Julian put me onto the phone with him. And I'm so thrilled to speak with John again. And I, I said, um, oh, John, just so fabulous to hear your voice after all these years it was only 10 years or so wasn't it but it felt like a lifetime since he went to New York and um, he said oh my god you've made me feel so nostalgic now for Liverpool he said "Um, I'm waiting for my green card and I should get it any minute and I said will you come back and see us again please everyone misses you everybody in Liverpool is is going off you because you've been gone so long so you better hurry up back and all this sort of banter and he said oh look when I came over to England next year 
He said, my first stop is definitely Liverpool to look up oh, all my old friends. He said, all my friends are there. Yeah, I've got friends in London, but all my real friends are in Liverpool still. Right. So that was his promise. And then he said, um, we talked about a lot of things, but it's a very, very nice, nostalgic conversation. And John, to me, seemed like he was happy because we were all worried about him. He was taking so many drugs and all this. And in 1975, I, I thought he seemed in a happy place with himself. Right. And he was because uh, Yoko was having the baby at the time, probably. It was before, it was early in the year, but she must have known she was pregnant. They must have known she was, she was pregnant with Sean. And so anyway, he, he, it was lovely to hear him being happy with himself and looking forward to seeing people in England again. And, and I was so excited. And he said to me, can you promise me, uh, can you do me a favour, Helen? Uh, he said, I wish you could find me an art school scarf and a string of black puddings. Will you send them if you find them? Aww. And I said, an art school scarf. I might be lucky. I might be lucky. But I said, John, a string of black puddings. Uh, you know, black puddings, I don't know whether you've heard of them. Right. Uh, they are, it's, a, it's sausage meat. Right. Blood, blood, blood sausage. It's black. And right. it's inside a sort of pig's bladder type covering. And it's, it's like string, things that magicians have on strings, you know, like sausages on strings. And, um, it's a very famous dish in Lancashire and also in Liverpool. And one of our main comedians for a lifetime was Ken Dodd. And he always claimed his dad worked in the black pudding mines, you know. And, <laughs> and John, so- John was very partial. John was very partial to Ken Dodd and his black pudding stories. I love that- it. Would I find him? I said, John. I said, you'll never get it through customs because they'll think it's full of junk, full of stuff. (laughs) They'll cut it off. (laughs) I love it. it. Well, Helen, we've only got five minutes left, and it's going to cut us off. Oh, so again, Helen, Helen Anderson Designs dot com because we want everyone to get the cap, your t shirts, and to just experience this beautiful website. And we thank you from our hearts for being with us today. And my Instagram is at Helen Anderson Designs and Facebook, by the way, as well. HelenAnderson.com is my website where you can see the caps and order the caps if you want them and see all the other funny stories. And uh, at Helen Anderson is IG and Facebook. But I was so delighted to speak to you. And I'm sorry I rambled on a little oh, bit. Oh, it was wonderful. It was so wonderful. Well, I just didn't want to, <laughs> us to get cut off before we let people know where they could get these. The T-shirts, especially your Christmas T-shirt, is oh, darling. Yeah. So, oh, we'll thanks. do some more soon. We'll do some more. They'll keep changing. Thank you okay. very, very much. Thank you so much, both of you. It's been a wonderful, wonderful hour of chat. <laughs> I've enjoyed every second of it. Thank you so much, Helen. You were so kind. (laughs) Thank you so much. And good luck. Every word. Thank Thank you very much. I love being with you both. All right. Thank you, Helen. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye bye. Good night, everybody. Night. Well, sadly, that's all the time we have for today, everyone. That was a great show. But join us again in just a few weeks as we'll continue our 2021 walk through the psychedelic years of the Beatles. We started our journey through 1966 to 1970 by talking with the Beatles stylist, Leslie Cavendish, who was at Apple day in and day out. Leslie was also one of those people chosen to ride on the Magical Mystery Tour coach, and he had great stories about his adventures in London with those 
Hell's Angels that George Harrison had flippantly invited over to England for a visit. That's my George. And of course, they showed up. (laughs) (laughs) If you missed that fast-paced interview with Leslie, you can hear it on our She Said, She Said page at Podbean, Spotify, or iTunes. Just click on the link for Leslie's show on our She Said, She Said Facebook page. Coming up in July, we're going to be talking with Beatle fan executive editor and author, Al Sussman, who will tell us the real backstory on the Beatles during those late 60s psychedelic years. How did Apple come about? Who did it? When and where and why? Al knows it all. And he'll share it with both of us and with all of you in July. So stay tuned. Until then, here's to food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. ta and shine on.